Way back in 1984, Mark Lowry wrote the words for the now famous song, Mary, Did You Know? It took another seven years for that particular writing to find music to go with it. And when it did, it almost instantly became hit. It has been re-recorded hundreds of times by artists over the years in multiple genres. Uh, so impactful has it been that it's even reached the top 10 of the Billboard charts in two separate categories, which is not unique, but it is distinct. The song is odd. It raises a series of questions aimed at highlighting and detailing the wonder of what was happening to Mary, uh, asking her a series of questions. And I noticed that when set to music, uh, it doesn't have this sort of tone to it, but when you simply read the lyrics, uh, the, the onslaught of questions seems kind of overwhelming. It, it feels less like, like a wondrous questioning of Mary and more like an inquisition. Mary, did you know? You kind of expect like some guy in the background just out of the light with some cigarette smoke swirling around him as Mary sitting there sweating it out, you know? She's like, I didn't know. I didn't know. Some of the questions that are asked are clearly yes. The questions like, Mary, did you know that your baby boy was to save our sons and daughters? The answer to that is clearly yes. Many of the questions have to be no. Mary, did you know that your baby boy would give sight to a blind man, that he would calm a storm with his hand? I, I have no idea where Mary was supposed to get that information or why she should have had it or if she had uh, any sort of indication that he was going to do these kinds of things. After all, I'm not sure how many moms know anything about their sons. Mary had to have known much more about her son, Jesus, than she knew about any of the others. I imagine that when James came along, she was kind of like, you know, I knew a lot about what Jesus was going to be, but I've got no idea about you, Jimmy. Da Vinci's mom didn't know what he was going to be. Bach's mom didn't know what he was going to be. Muhammad Ali's mom had no idea that he was going to grow up to be as great at boxing as he was. It's an odd, odd song. Perhaps instead of just fictionally asking Mary what she knew, we could do one thing better and go to scripture and simply listen to what she actually said she knew and see if we can't make some sense out of it. So today, let us consider Mary's Magnificat. This is the name that is typically given to this passage of Scripture because the first Latin word in what she says is Magnificat. Let us go to it and see if we can learn from what Mary already knew. Let us read Luke 1, verses 46 through 55. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. For his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has not sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. This is indeed the word of our God. The first thing that we can see from this that Mary knew was that God is majestic. He is absolutely majestic. 
She begins by saying, my soul magnifies the Lord, which is kind of an odd way of translating this bit because we don't use the word magnifies. She wasn't using a telescope or a microscope to see God at the bacterial level or at the star level. She's simply saying in, in sort of a metaphorical way, I make him greater. Uh, my, my soul exalts him is another way of saying it. It is a way of, of looking at God and saying something that has happened to her has made her think of God in a much larger and greater way. He is bigger than she thought. She is being he is being magnified in her eyes. And the question then becomes why. She explains there in verse 48. Even as her spirit rejoices in God, her Savior, she, she does all of this because he has looked on the humble estate of his servant and he has made every generation now call her blessed. In other words, her station has completely changed. She was humble and lowly, a, a woman in the first century and a young woman in the first century now being exalted so that every generation might call her blessed. There are two errors that we can easily fall into here that people do every single day, and today of all days, they are certainly doing it. The first one is we can extol her blessing so much that we make her into more than she is. Some will make Mary out to be even something along the lines of co-redemptrix, simply because she took a part in the bringing to life of Christ, and she was part of bringing him into the world, and so they think that she shares in his redemption of the world in some form or fashion. We, we don't need to make light of Mary being the mother of Christ in order to say that redemption was gained by Jesus Christ quite apart from Mary. While blessed, Mary is nothing more than a normal young woman filled with hopes and ambitions, difficulties and fears, sins, and she needs to be remembered as such. So we can't make her out into more than she is, but we shouldn't reduce her, therefore, because others make too much of her. We shouldn't reduce her below where she was. We shouldn't try to keep her humble. While extolling her beyond what she is is unwarranted, we need to remember that she is indeed supposed to be blessed by generations forever. Mary is indeed unique. Many women in here will bear children. None of them will bear the Christ. She is blessed because of this. Yes, she's also a sinner. Yes, she also needs saving, which is quite clear because she looks at God as her savior. She is not innocent. She is not freed from sin. Yes, she does know that this child will be special. She does need salvation. But she is indeed blessed. And she has been handed an incredibly blessed task. And every single thing in scripture screams that she did that great task well. She did it well. But what has brought about this change? She was humble, and she is now exalted. She was low, and she has been called blessed by every generation. What has happened? Absolutely nothing in our text, nothing in the beginning of Luke, nothing anywhere implies that anything has happened except that the Holy Spirit has come upon her, and she has conceived a child. It is the coming of this child that means that she is blessed. It is the coming of Jesus that has caused this change in her. Friend, we are all, likewise, a fairly humble estate. There isn't a person in here who is royalty. There's none in here who are really, truly wise. We are not captains of industry and leaders of the free world. All of us are lowly. While we do have much, there's no doubt that we have much, much more than almost any generation of people who have ever come before us. We also know that the much that we have is very fragile and can be ripped apart and ripped away from us at any time. No matter how humble our estate might be, God can change our fortunes forever simply as he changed Mary's. You too can be blessed. You can have the riches of heavens at your fingertips. 
All of the inheritance that he has stored up to give his son, you are co-heirs of once you trust and believe in Jesus Christ. In doing so, becoming those who inherit with God all of the blessings of heaven, there's no doubt that you can begin to know what Mary knew, that God is indeed majestic and worthy of praise and worthy of lifting up your voice to. If God is majestic and deserving of the highest praise, he is able to be thus because secondly, he is mighty. He's not just majestic, he is mighty. Mary knew that he was mighty. For he who is mighty has done great things. God is the able one. This word is used often to describe someone who is capable or able, something that they can indeed do. And God is known as the one who is able. He is known as the mighty one because there is nothing that he can't do. Anything that he puts his mind to, it's done. He doesn't work like us. He doesn't have to think and say, I want to do that, and then he has to go do it. The second God says, I want that to be, it is. He is always able. This word is found littered throughout the Old Testament, sometimes for God's enemies. Goliath was known as a mighty one. The Philistines decry the fallenness of their mighty one. But God never lies on a field with his head cut off. God is always the mighty one who never fails. Psalm 23, 7 and 8. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty the Lord mighty in battle. He is the mighty one. He fights for his people. Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He is able to do everything that he sets his will to do. And Mary was the first to stumble onto the question that is asked by Christians in every generation and theologians everywhere. How can these things be so? In verse 34, she asks that after being told that she's going to conceive a kid. And she says, I know enough about the birds and the bees. I know enough. Mama told me enough to know that this is not supposed to happen this way. I remember that. I don't understand how these things are going to happen. Now, something like this has happened before. Not quite this, but something like this happens all the time. Sarah, with a womb as good as dead, conceives and bears Isaac in her old age. Hannah, barren. For years and years, prays before the Lord, and Samuel is given to her. Interestingly enough, if you read through the Magnificat and you go back to 1 Samuel chapter 2 and read through Hannah's prayer, you'll find an incredible number of similarities between it. Almost like when Mary is told by the angel that you're going to conceive and bear a child, she went back to Scripture and she said, I don't understand. What am I supposed to do here? And in reading Hannah's prayer, she meditated on it. She stumbled over it. She thought through it. And then as soon as Elizabeth blesses her, this is what comes out of her. Scripture. She learns well. Elizabeth herself will bear a child after being barren. Now, Mary's miracle is far beyond that. All of those were normal conceptions, no doubt. Mary's is particular. But the angel gives there the right answer. Verse 38 to her question, nothing will be impossible with God. How can these things be so? With God, all things are possible. Whatever he sets his mind to do, he will do. He is the mighty one. He is the capable one. He is the able one. They might be theological and philosophical problems for us, but they are our problems. They are not God's. God is able to do what he wants. Our call is not 
to make sure that we understand it completely and totally. Our call is to believe it. What he has called upon us to do is simply to ascend to it, to believe it, and to trust in what he has said. He is able and powerful and mighty to do all things, and that includes humbling himself to take on the form of human flesh without losing a cent, a miniature bit of his divinity, fully God and fully man united together, even if that man is nothing more than just a little baby. God can do these things because he is mighty. Mary knows that God is mighty. He is able to do all things. These things are not always good together, though. Atomic bombs might be considered both majestic and mighty and not good for any of us, depending on how close you happen to be to them. But we need to pair that up with number three. God is not just majestic and he is not just mighty, but he is immensely merciful. We read continuously throughout the wisdom literature in the Old Testament that the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of wisdom, is the fear of the Lord. To fear the Lord, to know God's might and God's power, means that you ought to fear it. To know that he is majestic and to know that he is mighty means that you ought to be very, very careful in going sideways with God. Trampling against God's laws and going against him in disobedience is a highly, highly discouraged thing in Scripture. You should seek not to upset him. You should seek not to cause his anger to spark. But know that the wisdom literature holds out that as true, while at the same time saying, that is not the only reason why you come to God. And that is not the only reason why you ought to follow him. You follow him not just because to not follow him is death. You follow him because to follow him is indeed life. It is good. It is wise. It is right. Because knowing that his ways are filled with love and care and compassion. And oddly, fearing him rightly makes you run to him and seek mercy when you do wrong. After all, where are you going to go to hide from him? Where, where are you going to go to get away from this God? How are you going to go to a place where his spirit can't follow you? What are you going to think in your head that he can't already read and know? Unlike some, he needs no list, nor does he check it twice. And amazingly, when we run to God for mercy, he grants it. Notice the kind of mercy that is here. His mercy is for all those who fear him from generation to generation. Not from generation, skip some, you know, those wicked ones, and then, then it pops back up again when people are more worthy, generation to generation. It was there in the Civil War. It was there in World War I. It was there in World War II. It was there in the ovens and the Holocaust. His mercy is there. His mercy is always there from generation to generation. It never leaves. It never goes away. God is faithful in all things to be merciful to his people. This idea that he has shown great strength and that his, his might is demonstrated by the strength of his arm in verse 51 is a picture of the Exodus. Two times in Exodus 15, after the people have gone through the Red Sea and the Red Sea has crashed down on the Egyptians, Moses in that great poem says that God with an outstretched hand has rescued his people. Acts 13 says the exact same thing using the metaphor of an arm instead of a hand. It's highly unlikely that she doesn't have something of the Exodus in mind here. After all, what she's going to go on and describe and what Luke is going to pay a great deal of attention to is the fact that God has come to rescue his people. He has come to end their oppression. He has come to end the difficulties that surround their lives, not only in forgiving their sins, but in wiping away the enemies that lie all around them. He is coming to bring his people back out again. It is an act of mercy upon them. It isn't what they deserved but it is what they got anyway. Mary knows that this child was meant to do this very thing. He is the bringer of mercy. 
He has come to help the poor. Even as we read this morning, open your mouth and I will fill it. Jesus has come to fulfill that. Literally to fill that and to fulfill that. He has come to give you all good things. He fills the hungry with good things. He quenches the desires of the thirsty. He gives the poor good. Mary knows this. God is merciful and he does great things for his people. But let us be warned, even as we spoke of in the Exodus, God's mercy is upon some and it's not upon the others. As his people go through the Red Sea and appear safely on the other side, Pharaoh's armies do not get that same treatment as the sea crashes in upon them. And that is because, fourth, God is never truly challenged. God is never challenged. It's tempting to see verse 52 as some sort of replacement. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate as though those of humble estate take the thrones of the mighty. But you have to know that Mary knows better than that. Jesus is not someone who has come to simply take down the powerful and let the proletariat rise up to take their place. He is not the last Jedi who's striking down the empire and giving power back to the people. That is not his role. He has not come to give power to the people. He has come to sit on the throne of David and rule over the house of Jacob forever, even as the angel foretold. He is king and there is no other. He takes the mighty down from their thrones because that throne belongs to him and him alone. His rightful place is that of a king. And as the angel foretells earlier in this chapter, that is a placement that he will never lose. Any would-be challenger to God's reign through this small child, his reign through this baby, will be utterly destroyed. We just read about Herod in Matthew chapter 1. Herod was wicked and he was evil, but he wasn't wrong. Herod had a right to fear. The announcement of this coming king was a threat to Herod. It would mean that his kingdom was coming to an end. It doesn't mean that his response to it was right. His response to it was all wrong. Christ will crush him for the evil that he has done. But he was right to fear this child. He was right to know that this kingdom and his could not coexist at the same time. Friends, many of you would say, I am not a king. I am not a queen. I do not roll rule over other people. I'm not in danger here. I'm not powerful and I'm not set up on a throne. But anyone who opposes the rule and the reign of this child will be removed and removed from even the smallest of those thrones. For those of you who are deceptive, so good at deceptive that you deceive even yourself, realize this, you are not your own master. You are not the one who desires and worships that which he desires. You don't get that right. You are not your own master. You don't get to determine what is good and evil in the world, what is right and wrong for you. God is your master. The Lord is the Lord over all men, and he alone gets to decide those things. You might be a king over a really pitiful little kingdom, but Christ still owns that kingdom. It is still his. Those who make themselves out to be king, even of these small kingdoms, he will destroy. There will be no kingdom set up over him. I beg you, don't challenge him in this. Don't say in your hearts, I do this because I think it's right. I will seek these things because I want to, but rather ask, what does God want me to do? For he is your king, he is your God, and he will have no masters who stand over you besides himself. And no friend, why he wants no other master over you. It is easy to think that this man who wants all control over everything is just a tyrant. He's just a despot. 
who is jealous for power and seeks his own goodness over the welfare of all others. Just like every other despot that we have ever seen in the world. Once power is given to them, they crush those who oppose them. But that is not this God. Because while God is never challenged, God is also never covetous. He, he doesn't desire anything from you. He, he needs nothing from you. He doesn't need your wealth. He doesn't need your glory. He doesn't need your power. He doesn't need your might. He has all those things. Jesus didn't come into the world so God could reign over all people. He could have done that without sending his son. Christ has come into the world to give mercy. For God's not greedy for power or might or wealth. He doesn't need to be. He's never covetous, never greedy over these things. He has come to feed the hungry, to give water for the thirsty, to heal the lame, to give sight to the blind, to raise the dead. And most of all, he has come to take the sin of his people. That sin that clings so closely to his people that would keep them from himself and from the Father. He removes it by taking all of its ends, by fulfilling all of the punishments that were meted out upon him, taking all of its penalty. He suffered all the way to death, only to destroy death and sin forever on the cross and to give life to those he died for by being raised from the grave. This is precisely what Paul means in the book of Philippians when he says this, that Jesus Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. What he means by that is Jesus didn't come to earth as God and man united so that he could, as a man, invoke the rights of God and thrust himself over all men. But instead, he did that not to reign over them. As Jesus himself would say at the end of Mark 10, he did not come to be served, but he came to serve. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to die an ignominious death on the cross so that you would have eternal life. He's not covetous. Don't challenge him because he has good for you. Jesus has come so that we may have life and have it abundantly. He's taken our sin he has taken our shame, he has borne it on the cross, and he has given us life instead. Mary knows that she can entrust herself to this God because he wants good for her. And she can trust that because, sixthly, God, sixthly, I don't know that I've said that before in a sermon. My, my wife asked me yesterday, do you even want to go get lunch? Sixthly, God is never changing. God helps Israel. He helps his people. He has always helped his people. Mary ends this by saying, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. God remembers what he spoke all those years ago. God remembers the things that he has promised to Abraham, and he will keep those promises. When he first called Abraham, he said, Abraham, I'm going to make you a blessing to the nations. I will bless you and bless those who come after you. Friends, you are not Jewish, but you are still a child of Abraham. By faith, through Romans 4, through Galatians, we know that we are children of Abraham. Keeping the promises to us are keeping the promises to Abraham. Just as Mary knew that she was going to be blessed by all, she also knew this because the promises that were made that all of Abraham's descendants would be a blessing to the world. It's not unique to Mary. The things that Mary say she is blessed by, she says because she knows the people of God will generally be blessed by. This child that she bore was not simply a blessing for her, but for all of the world. And God would be faithful to his promises to bring a blessing. But blessing was not the only thing that God promised to bring. Continually throughout the Old Testament, 
he promises that he will bring destruction and disaster upon all who stand against him. And his people, amongst all the people in the world, were given special rules and special laws, and they, they didn't follow them. They continually thwarted what God desired and what God wanted. They didn't place him above all other gods. Instead, they chased the gods of the foreign peoples who hated them and sought their own destruction. We were no better. Having no knowledge of God and in darkness, and God says, I will punish all of them. And he also said, I will bless all of them. These two things cannot stand together only in Jesus Christ. For he takes all of our sin. He takes all of our shame. He takes all of our punishment on himself and gives us back all of the promise of God. Gives us back all of the blessing of God. The only way that God could ever keep his promises was in Jesus Christ. This is why Paul says that all of the promises of God find their yes in him. All of the goodness, all of the wrath, all the anger, all the justice, all the blessing, all the grace, all of it finds its yes only in him. All of the answers can only finally be fulfilled in Jesus. So when Mary says he has kept the word that he has spoken, he keeps the word that he has spoken because that son has been given to her. Mary knows that God is faithful to his promises. And she knows this not least because it's found in Scripture, but also because she is carrying a child who she has been guaranteed by an angel will one day rescue his people from their sins. Friends, let us be like Mary today. Trust and believe that Jesus is God himself in human flesh. But we can go beyond what Mary knew. We can know that he has died for our sins and been raised for our life. We know that he can cleanse us and purify us from sins. Trust in him. Put your life at stake for him, and he will not let you down. Oftentimes when preachers think through the trials and tribulations of, and the circumstances of Jesus' birth, we focus on Mary and Joseph and the difficulties that must have been part and parcel of their lives simply by having this great blessing placed upon them. Mary, no doubt, would have felt this quite acutely. She was a young woman who was found to be with child before married, being married. And, and quite honestly, people back then could do math just as well as they can now. And they knew how long it took, and they knew when she got married. There's no doubt that she would have carried some sort of social stigma for that. Possibly made worse is the fact that Joseph was told to stay with her, which no doubt made her life better, but at the same time, it wouldn't be too much of a stretch to think that she carries some of the guilt for ringing Joseph into this, although it was none of her doing. Added on top of that, the fact that she was told that her son would be great. He was to be the savior. Can you imagine him walking within like five feet of a fire as a mom, thinking that if he falls in and I'm to blame, I've messed up the entire world. I, I've, this is my fault. Now, she clearly understands the great sovereignty of God in all things. And no doubt she thinks that he will watch over him as much as a mom could. His father, true father, will watch over him as well. But that's true for all of us. And any mother on the ground understands these are difficulties that Mary might have felt. And even his death will be more personal for her than most. Simeon as much as prophesies that in chapter 2, verse 35, that a sword would pierce Mary's own soul. She carries great social weight. She carries great responsibility. With all of these pressures, and I have no doubt that they are real, 
What is quite amazing is not that preachers want to play up those pressures. They want to play up the difficulties that surrounded Mary's life. The odd thing is, the truly odd thing is, we never hear about it in Scripture. Mary treasures, she ponders, she praises, but she never sulks, worries, or is downcast. She never seems to have burdens. We read about her praising. We, we read about happiness. We read about joy. We read about being comforted. In the midst of everything that's happened, we never hear of, of burdens being placed on her. Why does she not feel it? My guess is that because of the glory of what God was doing, strengthened her. The giving to her of this child was indeed a burden, but the giving to her of this child was a blessing far beyond the burden so that it overwhelmed it. And what she had left was nothing but gladness and joy and comfort for her people that God was coming to visit his people. No matter what this meant for her, this kept her on track. This child was not given to her simply to increase her suffering or her despondency. This child was given to her to take it away. And her response of faith and joy was meant to be an indication of what should happen to us as well. Christ will indeed place burdens on you. Come to me, he said. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. He will place burdens on you. Sometimes those burdens will be heavy, but they will feel light because of the glory of Jesus Christ himself helping you, supporting you, comforting you. This child does not bring with him undue suffering, but good news of great tidings. This Christmas and evermore, let him carry the burdens that you were never meant to bear. I have no doubt that many people in here feel burdens. They feel anxious. They're discomforted by the world. They have difficulty at work. They've got difficulty in their family. The holidays are never especially easy times. But the holidays, especially Christmas, was never meant to burden you with things that you can't bear. It was meant to relieve you of those things. Let him do that today. This child has not come to burden us, but to bring no less than to joy to the entirety of the world. Let's pray. Father, I thank you in the name of Jesus Christ for the giving of your son and the forgiveness that comes through him. I am keenly aware of my own failings before you, and I am ever so thankful of the gift of your son who has taken away indeed my sins. He was born to die and to die for sinners that he might live again. And as we crossway gather to celebrate his life, as we as families gather to celebrate his birth. We do so with an eye toward his death. But it is toward a death that is limited and temporary. He has given life to all who call upon his name. Let us remember his first coming, this Advent we celebrate today. Let us do so in anticipation of a second coming, of a second Advent, where darkness and sin will be forever banished, and the good reign and the name of Jesus Christ will be known by all. Let us do this in hope and in joy for the glory of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.